This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Border Flute Pod. We have blue flutes in the pod today. It's season three, episode nine, and our most popular platform, performance therapy. We're bringing some advice to those wondering if they could have a career teaching and performing as an instrumentalist together and not put into a box of being just one or the other. Can you imagine my surprise? It was our Porter Productions meeting with Alan J. Tomasetti, Justine Sedke, about this podcast topic, and they were telling me there were people out there with the moniker Professional Student. So if you can find the balance and have grit and determination, you can get the Doctorate of Musical Arts. It's a qualification now required for what we call teaching the flute in academia. You see, some people... Their brain can't get enough, like me. (laughs) You love to mentor. It's all about the students. So today you'll hear about the paths taken by Dr. Maria Castillo from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and Dr. Erica Boysen from the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. And you'll also, as always, hear my stories without a filter. I went to the vault and found the composer we all listen to when we need clarity, transparency, simplicity, space, timelessness. Enjoy the award-winning Mozart pianist himself, Christopher Harding. We're performing Sonata in B-flat major, K-14. Thanks for being here. It's so great to welcome you in. So you can imagine my producer's surprise when I didn't know the person known as the professional student. That became the thing. Okay, so we're going to change up the beginning today by listening in 
As our producer, Alan J. Thomas-Setti, explains to our guests, Maria and Erica, uh, our why for the podcast, which is explain about the Doctorate of Musical Arts and if it's truly necessary, why you would do it, um, any advice, what it's like, you know, being now being a young professor and what that degree was like, and, you know, get the advice of some young professors. So let's listen in as he explains that I had no idea about the professional student. So at least going in music school, you've heard of the term professional student. Yeah. Those that are worried about getting orchestral career, so they become a professional student, get more and more degrees, and they're like, oh, I just want to go to the professor realm because I can with all these higher degrees. So that's kind of what we were talking about. Well, and Amy has never heard that before, but Erica and Maria, have you heard that before? Erica, go ahead. Yeah, I've, I've heard of the professional student. I didn't realize that that was the easy route. I guess yeah. I, I, I knew, I've heard of, okay, you know, things aren't looking great this year in terms of jobs that are open, or I, you know, things kind of fell through, so I'm going to get uh, another diploma, or maybe I'll find another place where I can be funded, right, to, to get lessons and play in ensembles, um, to, you know, in, in order to wait for that, that big job that I've been waiting for. So yeah, I have heard of that. I actually had not heard of the label professional student, but I mean, you're saying what my life was. I, um, you know, went through school and then got jobs and taught and then got a job in Venezuela in, as associate principal in an orchestra, went back to school as what I could, could be like a professional student because we have a different mentality. You're already thinking of a professional life and school kind, kind of like trying to absorb the best of it. And um, even though I wanted to continue my orchestral career, uh, but I love teaching, the opportunity to continue in school uh, was there and was inspiring. And I always think we're, we're, no matter what age we are, we are students of life and we can always hear people teach us something. And um, I suddenly ended up with my, you know, applying for the DMA. Life took me that route and I love it. I mean, I, for me, it was like, the teaching and the performance was always side by side and it was hard to have a preference when I was younger it just was always there and yeah ended up here and I'm so happy where I am right now and all of the opportunities but I think that as musicians we are all kind of professional students because we're always performing and we're as little kids we're always doing what the professional musicians do at different levels so I think we're all professional students in a way. If anyone would have told me when I was 20 years old that I was going to be full professor one day, I'd say, you're crazy. I'm a one-person show. I have the soloist mentality. If you're into sports, my husband, who's a hockey coach, would point out that in sports, these athletes are like runners, golfers, gymnasts, swimmers, tennis pros. And that's what I did. When I was on a team, I wasn't very good. My entire teenage life was spent practicing for and practicing against time. I was just doing my thing, right? I mean, just doing it, practicing. I had comments from friends of the family saying things like, when I'm old and in the rocking chair, I'm going to watch the Amy Porter show on television. 
I would laugh. My father told me if I practiced, I could do great things in music. And my mother, on her deathbed, when I was only 26, she was saying, when I die, I want you to go, 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 go. Now, did any of those people say anything to me about the flute? Nope. I was also told by my British mother, a stage mother, who couldn't really accept it when I won third prize, by the way. But yes, I could do anything from be president and I should go play in the Boston Symphony. And I would always just roll my eyes. But after she passed away, guess what? I did both. I was president of the Southeast Michigan Flute Association and acting principal in the Boston Symphony for six weeks with Seiji Ozawa. Now, did my mother qualify which president or how long with the Boston Symphony? Nope. Now, let's bring up my brother in San Diego, you know, the one who played trumpet in the U.S. Army Band in California, and he inspired me to play the trumpet. Well, he said, I should be a professor. Not, oh, you'll be one if you want. No, it was point blank for 20 years of my life. Since I was like 15, he's, he kept saying, you should teach at a major university and have stability. <laughs> no! I was doing my thing, which was the thing. All of it was me. I couldn't let someone tell me what to do. But however, I kept it in my back pocket like an old list. And I looked back at this list with a smile when I realized the list was morphing into my dream. So if we're in performance therapy and the couch is pulled out right now, let me sit down and tell you a story. I was 15. I was finished with the flute lesson, and I was sitting outside on the curb waiting for my dad to pick me up from a cul-de-sac somewhere in Wilmington, Delaware. I looked up at the sky, and I wondered where the flute would take me. I was ready to dream for real, really big, because it was coming so easily. But I had one fear, teaching 30-minute lessons. Now, before you get defensive, I know how crazy that is because that teacher is Virginia Atherton. She's influenced so many hundreds of amazing children throughout her life in Delaware and California. And I in no way now feel that teaching 30-minute lessons was something bad. It's just something I didn't want to do. And I recognized that schedule and rigor. And I was already performing in the concerts called Community Showcase and in the Youth Orchestra of Greater Philadelphia, and I had the bug. I did teach the trumpet, (laughs) 30-minute lessons to a young girl, but not the flute. That's funny, right? Okay, I fast forward for you. I get into Juilliard at 17, and I ran. I ran with my head so far down I didn't even stop to think if anyone liked my playing. I just studied with the masters and I listened to their knowledge and I practiced what they preached. Perception was taken over by knowledge. What I knew to be my future would finally come. And I gained true experience in the chair and on stages of the world. And I've won awards that opened doors to this day I will forever appreciate. I won my job in the Atlanta Symphony, the associate principal flute, at age 26. 
and I ran again. I ran so far with my head down. I gave up relationships and my personality. I became someone I wasn't, and finally everything came to a screeching halt. I followed my heart, though. When I heard the words from a friend, Peter Witte, then at Kennesaw State University, he said to follow my love of music, all things flute, and a solo career that I missed. He said audition for the University of Michigan. So I did, and everything was reborn, including my personal life. So I've made choices like you, life choices, hard choices, crappy, stupid, dumb, embarrassing choices. And at the same time, literally at the same time, I was flourishing, just being me on my instrument. It's almost like you have to make all those dumb, embarrassing choices in order to get clear. So at the University of Michigan, I I teach pitch and rhythm like in the Atlanta Symphony. I teach how to audition like a winner because I've won. I was organizing flute clubs like my typical self, and at the University of Michigan, I was making sure students were in touch with reality and bringing them all the best teachers as my guests. As a founding teacher in the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra Talent Development Program, I was eager to bring examples of diversity to my studio And I would always say, I want my studio to look like the United Nations. I teach career expansion because that's what I was doing. I was doing it myself as Amy Porter flutist. I was filming Cara Gaylord caprices and recording with friends. And you know what? All this brought me to an award. The Henry Russell Award for a junior faculty who at six years at Michigan has showed creative scholarship and distinguished ability as a teacher. So did I need a doctorate of musical arts degree for this job? I never went back to school to get it. Upon my hiring, the dean at the time told me I had the equivalent of three DMAs. Fine, however you want to qualify that. And and I felt like I wanted to prove him right. In the next six years, I really worked hard and that award came. Then I asked the next dean, how do you know when you're ready for a promotion, what should I be doing? She gave me a great answer. In seven years, try to get your publishing, performing and teaching and service up to the highest level you can. But please don't try to do all of those things at one time. So it took 10 years and I was full professor and I've never looked back. I serve with DEI, At my school, I serve my department at my school. I serve my community through this podcast and through SEMFA. And I'm proud to be a performer who educates. And when I knew the students called me Porter, just Porter, (laughs) I became Porter Flute. I just made it up while looking at all that I had done and I embraced it. So I used the social platforms to bring attention to the students and not through my ego lens, but through my spirit lens. You see, spirit doesn't know ego. If you, my dear listener, have put me into your box of perceptions today, I clearly will dissolve from there peacefully. Here is the truth for those limited believers. Educators perform and performers educate. 
the two don't work without each other. Be you and I'll be me. Don't ever compare or you'll lose your strength. Perhaps I should just say, well, wait. Stop Sorry. <laughs> say it again. My Blue Flute alumni, Erica and Maria, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. Yay! Yay! So happy to be here. You are my most recent doctoral graduates, and I'm so excited to feature you today to have some lens into what it's like today to get that, what they call a terminal degree. It's from the quote-unquote academy, which I also learned as a word. I thought, oh, it's academia. No, apparently, according to some, there's some big academy. Yeah, I know. I know it's just very large and unknown, but all we care about is learning the tradition of flute playing from great masters. We want to learn about diversity in music. We want to learn about core curriculum, right? We want to learn about um, all these things. And to get that, I feel like real world experience equivalency is also um, in reality, you know, equal, as I use that word, equivalent to a doctor of musical arts. So I'm bringing you on here to ask you, from the very start, what inspired you to be a doctor of musical arts, you know, professional, living it? You have studios, you have research, you have a personal life, you have families, you have incredible careers for yourself that, you know, you look back on and say, wow, at one point I didn't have that. And I was in Professor Porter's kitchen and she was cooking for me and I was eating this food, wondering where I'd be. Now you ladies are laughing and I can see that. So can you tell me what inspired you to get your DMA and, and sit in my kitchen? <laughs> the cooking! The meals. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But those meals were memorable. Absolutely. I, I don't. I'm sorry. I kind of jumped in. Maria, do you want to go first? No, go ahead. No, Erica. So you were present, almost presented to me in advance by Paula Robeson. And she would email me from time to time saying, she arrives as sunshine at your door. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what kind of student is this who's going to arrive as sunshine? I haven't had that since Maria Castillo was in school. So Aww. there was Erica Boysen smiling, saying right after a, do- a master's. Right? And I didn't trust that either. I needed an older student. So go ahead. What inspired yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this, you know, my thoughts about um, how I landed into the DMA are very much correlated to our previous com- conversation about the, the professional student. So I didn't fall into this degree. This was something I knew I wanted because I knew very early on that what I wanted to do was work one-on-one with individuals. I mean, so the first you know, time I ever taught a lesson was when I was in third grade and I would teach piano fun lessons to the neighbors, right? And I fundamentally just really enjoyed the learning process, right? The teaching process. Um, So even, you know, while I'm getting these performance degrees at the bachelor and master's level, I knew that that was kind of where I wanted to go because I was so enthralled with that prospect, with working one-on-one, especially with individuals 18 to, you know, mid-20s. I mean, there's really 
not a time in life that's like that. Um, you know, the first time you leave your formative home and you're getting a sense of who I am, what's my voice, how do I use this instrument, what do I do with this instrument? Um, so I, you know, that's why I wanted to get the DMA because it was going to allow me to do that professionally. Um, now, you know, so I've been at UNCG, I guess, uh, this will be my seventh year. Wow, time flies. I now talk with prospective students who want to, you know, get the, the DMA. And, and this, is, this is a kind of, I would say, a contentious topic, you know, about what, what purpose does the DMA serve? Do we hand out too many DMAs? Is it, you know, do we get the DMA only to teach at higher education level? Is there merit in just getting the DMA for the DMA itself? I, I'm a, I am a firm believer that um, there's something to be gained in any type of degree. I can tell you from my time at Michigan, that was one of the most challenging degrees I received out of my three degrees. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the writing process, the research process, the teaching process, how to, you know, resiliency. Um, I mean, in that time was, was um, beneficial just because of those things, right? Whether I um, used that degree in, in higher ed or not, I think um, I would go back and do the degree over again. But I also, it, it's important people to know that this degree is ultimately, you know, it, it, it prepares you to teach. My job, the primary part about my job is, is teaching, right? So I think it's important that people do realize that. Um, that, that, that is what it prepares you for among many other things, right? You'll, you'll be wearing a lot of different hats, but I'll pause here. Cause I want to hear, um, Maria's response. Thank you. Oh my God. You inspired me so much, Erica. And I knew you were one of the DMAs before in Michigan. Michigan is so hard to get in. There's only one spot every three years when you graduate. There are those who have been there. I think we all look up to them and what they have done and everything. So for me, it has been like that. Erica, um, Sarah, Meryl, they are inspiration and uh, source of um, learning from the experience. It has been great. <clears throat> and I love your answer, Erica, because mine has been very different. My life experience, and it's really nice to see how we end up maybe in the same place, going for a DMA, for, but in a different route. I uh, I always loved teaching. I started teaching um, when I got into a TA at the University of Miami with Christine Neal Capote. And that was around my, I don't know, I was like 23, 24. I started teaching and I loved teaching at that level. So I was minors and just doublers. And I realized that I really loved it and I wanted to do more with that. And after finishing my master's, I went to, to teach in Mexico and then I moved and teach in Venezuela. But at the same time, I was doing performance. I would like uh, organize, curate my own recitals. And I always had my performance there. I didn't know I wanted to do a DMA, maybe because I'm from a different country, different culture. So, you know, it wasn't the same system of like the DMA is to teach. But in Venezuela, you just teach. That's what you do. Right. And I went there and then moved back to the States to continue education. And, and this was after I was a associate principal of the Municipal Orquesta Municipal Sinfonica de Caracas. And um, I always have loved school. 
And that's one of the things. I feel like I have always been a student. I appreciate everything you learn from being in school. I know some people are like, I don't want to keep studying. But for me, I actually have a master's in Latin American musicology from Venezuela. So I always felt, feel like those are the places where, where you grow the most. So for me, thinking to go back to school was never like a hard thing, even though I already was kind of like a professional. I teach at Sistema and I was an associate principal in this orchestra. Went back to school for a DMA, and um, I realized, I think I saw it as a source of knowledge and growth. I wasn't thinking of, I need a DMA to go and teach in a college level, but I, I actually wanted to keep learning. And of course, I had the amazing opportunity to go back to my alma mater with Professor Potter and go back to Michigan. And I honestly, even though I was one of those older students that Professor Potter was talking about, um, I took so much advantage, advantage of starting and going back to school as an older person that already had... Uh, had a professional life. So I took so much advantage. I got a certificate in arts entrepreneurship because I knew that was important in life. I got a certificate in musicology too, because I love musicology and the certificate was there. So I was like, I'm just going to do it. So I think for me, it was more of like really taking advantage of those opportunities that are out there. I learned so much. The networking expanded so much. I have these incredible mentors that have guided me through life. And in the process, of course, I love teaching and performance. And even though I completely agree with you that the DMA is a degree to teach, my, my playing improves so much from everything I learned with all of the classes that you have to take and with my three years, actually two years in my DMA with uh, Professor Potter. So I think everything kind of like went uh, together and my time management increased so much. There was no way that I could like go through the DMA if I wasn't aware of how I was using my time. So life skills, as, as you were saying, is what helped me so much with the DMA. Of course, with a huge love for teaching and performance just in general. you first what was your audition like for UT Knoxville where you are now and how did the DEI certificate from Michigan factor into your equation in you know in in terms of being competitive uh, that's a great question so um you know, I think I was reading some of the questions you were mentioning and uh, one of them was um that the interview process to go into school is not as competitive as maybe an orchestral job. And I completely disagree with that after going through it. It's so hard to get a job teaching in academia, in a university. There are 
one spot. They're looking for this perfect teacher that is not only a great player, a great performer, but is also a great collaborator and fits into whatever the culture of the school is. So uh, there's a lot of that, you know. So you have to kind of be a person that that is offering what they are looking for. But it's super competitive. There's 70, 80 people applying for this one job. And then um, the process was uh, like three tiers, three three levels. So the first one, you have to pass them. Uh, the CV, so the paper. They don't know who you are. They just see you in paper. And it's so important to be a person that in paper looks special or unique. Um, if you are have experience playing, you have gigs and you teach, everybody has that. But what is it that you have that is very special? And here I would also say that the school you come from and the networking you have with your teachers is also very special because there is this kind of connections with people that know other people. And then, I mean, it's, it's music. It's a small world, so you need to have those connections. So when you are in school, like extremely recommend networking with not only your professor, of course, but other professors from other studios, from music, other areas, from even other, I don't know, for me, it was Latin American studies. I had one of my committee members was uh, one of the professors in Latin American studies. And I think that was really wonderful. So the first thing is that you look really good on paper and you're unique. Uh, then the second uh, round uh, it's a, it was a uh, Skype interview, and I think that has moved to Zoom right now. But it was an interview on the computer. And um, I remember meeting with, I think it was like five members of the committee, and each of them asked you one question. And um, you have to do so much research about the school. It's it's about you fitting into the school. So it's your homework to know what they're offering and what it is that you can give to what they have. It's not you being very special and here I am. It's actually you also doing the research to see what it is that that they offer, what you love, what you can uh, give or what uh, you can fit into. And then after that is the invitation and the visit to go to the school. Um, I am not aware of how many people were chosen for all of those, but it's usually uh, from the 70 people to say something, maybe there's, and I think you know better in the, in the yeah, like the, the, the Zoom might be like maybe 10 people or something like that, and then the visit is three or two or four. It depends on, on what it is. And is is not racking because you don't know what has happened before or what's gonna happen afterwards, but you just like need to be like super like apply complete mindfulness and be present in the moment. It doesn't matter anything else, you're here. And you know you're being compared to other people that has visited the school. And this visit is so intense. So intense because it's the whole day or the two days that you are there and you are always interviewing for it. When you are in the committee meetings, when you when in the interviews, the faculty with the students, with your performance or your teaching, and also when you are in the car and they're driving you to the airport and when you are having lunch with them, all of that is part of it. So I feel actually Michigan prepared me so well for that because I was so busy all the time and I need to learn how to compartmentalize my life and it really helped me to be there do so much in different and always be 100% there where I needed to be either if it was for my recital my interview my conversation with the dean or uh, my having social time and conversations while we were eating so it is a it is a very very intense process I don't think everyone is ready for it, 
um, or would be open for something like that. But it is completely worth it. And then you see what, what, then you go to the school and then you start seeing why it was like that. And you realize that it's necessary to go through all of these things because you are pretty much bringing in a colleague and a friend. So you want to see, yes, the level of professionalism and information you're bringing, but also what you're also bringing as an other member of the family, to say in a way. Exactly. You have to feel so secure in what you bring to the table. It was the best recital I've ever played. What do you think, right? I'm sure you both agree. You played, you had a great day that day, uh, and you were present in every aspect of your career, not just teaching or performance. So, Erica, what was your audition like? Uh, and how did you bring your love for um, diverse art forms blending, right? You love that. How, was your, how did that affect your, um, your audition? Yeah. So I know our, our listeners are only listening. They can't see us. But I just, I wanted to uh, share that I felt like I was a bobblehead every, every, while Maria was talking because I, I can't agree more with um, everything she just mentioned. Um, so mine, you know, these, these interviews, um, a lot of them, yeah, follow a template. So you're gonna, there's gonna be obviously that paper round. There may or may not be a Zoom, phone, Skype round. Actually for UNCG, there, there wasn't for me. So it went from paper to um, come fly here. Uh, we want to meet you. Um, and then, you know, a part of those two days, one jam-packed day, you can expect obviously a meeting with uh, the committee, which can range from four people to six people. I remember uh, mine was in the morning. It was the first thing. And um, Ashley Barrett, a dear friend and colleague, uh, she dropped me off the night before and said, Erica, be sure you eat breakfast before our meeting because there's nothing worse than trying to answer uh, interview questions while you're also trying to get calories. So thank you, Ashley Barrett. So that's how we started the day off. There's going to be obviously some meeting Maria mentioned with the dean. I also met with the director of the performance area. Um, I, I taught methods class, which that was that was the, uh, the second thing of my day, which I I love because coming from Michigan, you know, we yeah, we. Uh, shout out to Colleen Conway. Uh, we got to um, oh, teach, yeah. That, yeah, <laughs> teach that course uh, for the, the ed students at Michigan. Um, so uh, I felt really excited to work with those students. I had my handouts. I had some music all, all ready to play. Um, you're going to obviously have some type of recital, you know, 30 minutes or so. Maybe you get a rehearsal with the pianist. Maybe you don't. Um, and that's where, yeah, I I was finishing up one of my dissertation recitals, which uh, um, was fusing music with movement. Um, so, you know, that recital was a really fun way to, to share kind of, this is who I am. This is what I really enjoy to play, um, you know, music that I enjoy playing. These are projects that you can expect me to dabble in in the future. Um, so I remember, you know, I, I think I played Ron Murray, I played the Hugh Fantasy, um, and then I did a piece with movement all across the, the stage, and then I ended with beatboxing. 
which I think, you know, was a, a, a good summary of kind of who I, I am and I was at that time. You meet with the students, which was also a great time just to get without any other committee member there. So you really get to feel, you know, the culture of the, of the studio and what students are wanting. Um, obviously a masterclass, of course, and then uh, various meals and interactions in the hallway interspersed the entire time. Yeah, the interview starts really from your first email with the committee head, right? Um, and and ends when you, you're dropped off at the, the airport. But. And the questions and answers from the students. I'll never forget a hand was raised. Why would you leave the major symphony orchestra for a teaching job? And your response? Because my heart wasn't singing. Mm. And... I couldn't really get into it with her because it was my choice. Building a new studio, whether it's a private studio or collegiate studio, it can be tricky and intimidating. Um, What experiences have you had building your studio where you are? I'll talk to Erica first about this since you've been here longer. Um, And what techniques can people use to build their own studios, you know, at home? How can you model this? Because it's it's a bit of a relationship. We're not their mother. We're not their best friends. We're their professors. So... Erica, how do you how did you build your your studio at, at UNCG? Yeah, I, I this all to me boils down to relationships, right? So it, I knew it was my job to introduce myself. Uh, I remember that summer before I was emailing everyone I could just to say, hi, can we grab a cup of coffee? I want to get to know you. I want to get to know North Carolina. I want to get to know the triad area. I want to get to know, you know, um, how, how I can, how we can uh, work together, how we can be mutually beneficial. Um, And I think that's, that's, you know, what's, what's um, worked well for me. Right. So, uh, what does that look like fleshed out? That means you get to know um, your local music stores. Um, you get to know the private teachers. You get to know the band directors. You get to know the community organizers. Go to the local coffee shop. Go to the brewery. Figure out, you know, do people come and play here? And how can we get involved? I think it's all about just how can I, how involved can I be in this area as possible, right? So that means Greensboro for me and the Winston-Salem area and High Point and then kind of working on spheres, um, building uh, beyond that, but investing in your local community and understanding how, you know, um, you know we can all be mutually, mutually beneficial, um, really for the benefit of, of students and of music and bringing yes. music to, to our communities. The Allstate system is a great example. So when you become a professor, you shouldn't just run away and 
play concerts. You should <laughs> be local, stay local, and cultivate your garden uh, where it's growing. And that is the Allstate program, I firmly believe. Uh, play those etudes, and you can see all my alumni that are teaching. Get on, play those etudes that are required, uh, and uh, I think that's exactly the right information. Maria, what about you? How, did, well, how are you recruiting right now at this very moment? You just had an amazing festival for the second time. Yay. Yeah, that was awesome. And I completely agree with everything Erica is saying. However, I moved to Knoxville, a new city, and I started this job in the middle of a pandemic. So I could not do the relationship thing. I did not know how to contact the band directors and go and visit because I couldn't. They were not really teaching. And they, I mean, I felt completely isolated. So um, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm establishing the relationships and the connections. I just had my second Vols Flute Fest, which is a festival I started last year within like two months of starting teaching here. I created it and it was a virtual event where Professor Porter came and was my first guest. And this year it was Professor Alberto Marsa, who was my first teacher here in the United States, and I feel so thankful for these amazing mentors I have. And right now, this weekend was so amazing because I had private teachers and these students from the from the area that came, and it was so beautiful to meet them and to establish the connections and to know names of professors and then be able to see their faces. And then we were hugging like we knew for, forever, but we did not have the opportunity to do that at the beginning. So I have been here for a year and a half, and it's just now when I'm starting to like really feel that I'm starting to uh, develop those relationships. So what I did was really focus on what I had, which was my students, and start from where they were. I had to understand where, what was their level, what was their experience, and not only playing-wise, but psychologically, and their experience in the school, and then be able to adapt to what they needed. So I came from Michigan, you know, doing a thousand things at the same time and doing this and that. And I came here and I just couldn't come with the same kind of like, let's do a thousand things at the same time. I needed to see where they were and how could I guide them to where I want them to be. However, starting from where they are. So that's what I did. We started doing a lot of technical studies. We couldn't do technique class, so I created these technique videos thing. So I was trying to be creative within within being able to teach in the in the pandemic. And I actually taught all last year on Zoom because of the pandemic. I only heard them live a little bit. It was a little better, the weather, and we were outside in a tent. So it was a little bit of the relationship as like more personal, but uh, we all kind of got to know each other and really start to be very respectful of where each of us were and start that relationship and understanding from where we were. So it was very kind of like from a core, a nucleus, and not... You know, I couldn't do the community and the old state, which I'm looking forward to do in February and January when that happens here in Tennessee. Uh, so, yeah, for me, it was like that. And, and I love, Erica, your answer, because uh, I, even though I completely agree with you, and as I said that, and that's what we learn, you know, the community and the band directors and this, what do you do when you can't do that? And there's always a way to start, and maybe there's not a specific order, but it's, it's a way to adapt and be able to do all of the things as far as you have that respect, understanding uh, of your student, of yourself as a teacher, your goals, and see how you can get there, and then also the community. I think those are like three very, very important things. 
Okay, Maria, I'm going to throw it to you. Maria has a certificate from the Excel program here at Michigan. And I feel that it helps you focus on something else besides the flute and flute teaching and perhaps give you gives you a different perspective. So can you talk about your duties in other areas and other responsibilities other than your teaching? Yeah, I actually think that for, we all have heard the uh, 21st century musician, the characteristics that make the musician, the successful musician right now. And that is, yes, uh, great playing and and, uh, teaching, but also having all of these hats. Erica was saying that we have to wear all of these hats. And I felt that that, um, if you have some entrepreneurial preparation and um, studies, and understanding how entrepreneurship works, then you can be very successful right now because you have to be creative. And I honestly feel that it was my experience as an entrepreneur with uh, my organization, the Latin American Music Initiative, what made me unique to coming here. They were very impressed that I was not only teaching and they like my teaching and they like the masterclass and the recital. What made me different also? And I was I had something else to offer. So I am so thankful for Excel in Michigan. I um, would love to start something like Excel here because I feel that that's why my mind started to be able to to be creative and be able to deal with other things because it's not only the teaching what matters it's other things that you have to develop in school um so for example i started with you know i'm an advocate of diversity and of course i promote latin american music but i'm promote all music by underrepresented composers. And uh, we started, I started here the idea of an um, um, initiative called the Spotlight on Diversity, which is uh, at the first time last year, it was meetings on Zoom where every professor or student could present ideas on, enter, uh, on um, diversity pieces or repertoire or maybe readings and thoughts about it. And this year it was a concert series where we are having faculty perform a full recital of underrepresented composers. And it was Actually, I feel my preparation with Excel, marketing classes, how to build your business, uh, how to uh, apply for uh, grants, actually, uh, all of that. And a class with, with basic entrepreneurial skills with Aaron Dworkin, what opened my mind, you know, like, there's so much you can do is not only this path. And actually, not only here, but when you're in a musician, the only path is teaching or orchestra. That's not true right now. There's so much you can do with music. So if you have that entrepreneurial experience, you realize that if you, I have my students, for example, uh, create the Instagram account and they run the Instagram account. And if they do this in a successful way, I guide them through this, how to do good marketing. They have experience in marketing that they can go and work for example, Carnegie Hall, the marketing department, because they know how to work on marketing and they did it well in school. So entrepreneurship is, um, I think, is one of those um, aspects of teaching that for me is a priority, goes hand by hand with music playing and music making. That is such incredible advice to give everyone, Uh, not just people going into academia, but gosh, everyone. The 21st century musician is upon us. Erica, what advice do you give to those who want a life in academia or just a great life in music? 
you know, to begin, I, I, this is, this is my go-to um, offering, which is, you know, being a master at your instrument, being a great player is required, but in and of itself is, is not sufficient. Um, you have to, you have to be able to do kind of it all. Um, and, and really, if you think about it, I, I, I see performance and performing, you know, right. We're, we're, we're playing the flute, but we're also storytellers. We're educators. We're um, community builders. We're collaborators, right? So in, in, in being a performer requires that. Um, so what does that mean? I think our, these degrees, whether it's the BM or the MM or even, you know, sometimes the DMA, I think we need to be updating the curriculum um, so that there are classes in the business school um, that are required of the, the performance degree. I think we need to be updating these, these degrees and to be reflective of how to be uh, successful or to, to you know, um, build as a, a meaningful professional career upon graduation. So my advice, if you're if you're going into a degree in performance as an undergrad um, with a Bachelor of Music, figure out what 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 are the um, options for double majoring. Choose your couple of minors. Find ways of of supplementing this this degree. Um, figure out what makes you different. Um, I, I I always share the story of. I was at a summer festival and we went around the, the flute studio. And we we're supposed to share with the group where we wanted to be in 10 years. What was our ideal job? And, and there was a, a very similar response going around the circle and it was nearing me. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is the response that I'm hearing is not necessarily the response that I, I, I feel truly represents me. My question, you know, should I, should I follow the response that everyone is saying, or should I stay true to kind of what maybe makes me different? Right. And, and I always recommend figure out that which makes you different and embrace it, nurture it, make sure that's a part of, of your education and, and say yes to all those opportunities that you're too scared to say yes to, uh, whether that's, you know, sight reading with a trio or, or, you know, going uh, to play at the local coffee shop, um, learning to play the ukulele, taking that one course that's like, oh my gosh, I am horrible at oral skills. How could I ever do a class that makes me sing? Or, you know, I'm coming up. I mean, we all, we all have these stories, right? Um, so embrace sure. that and, and go for it. There's a lot of myths and misconceptions uh, and this ever-increasing anxiety that I'm coming across in students that think they have to do this one thing and then they're freaking out and they can't do it anything. So when you say you have to have it all, can we put a disclaimer there? Let's say, like I said earlier in the podcast, that a dean told me once, take seven years, 
work on publications, work on recitals, and then work on teaching and service, and it'll all get done. So do you agree? Do you think that takes the stress level down a little bit? What's your advice to, like, take the stress out of things? Because people just think they have to achieve and perfectionism and wow, wow. I mean, serious wow right now. Of course, that is overwhelming. I think if I heard this as a 16-year-old, I would think I have to do it all. Oh, my gosh. I'm still just trying to, I don't know, play these notes in my etude correctly at the right time and in tune, right? And you're telling me I have to do all these other things? I guess um, changing the lens from I need to play these notes perfectly um, and I need to play them in a way that pleases everyone to... Playing the flute is just a portion of this career path, right? And that you need to be nurturing and you need to be cultivating other parts of yourself along the way. Yes, you're going to be playing your scales. You're going to be, you know, practicing. Guess what? I, I'm going to be practicing for the rest of my life. That's, that is a given. But we also yes. need to make time, right, to, to have these other experiences, um, have, this other, have these other classes that introduce marketing and finances and uh, writing and, and speaking, you know, all of these things. Um, so, so know that if you're doing the practicing, great. Keep doing the practicing. Make sure that in addition to that practicing, you're, you're, you're um, saving some time for, you know, these other supplemental skills, um, mm-hmm. social skills, writing skills, speaking skills. Take a class outside the School of Music. That means you're doing the work. Um, and if that's the case, then, then you are, you, you're, you're preparing yourself and, and trust that and um, try to n- not get overwhelmed in the process and, and enjoy, in, in fact, yeah, enjoying the process. I'm just inspired in that question by the New York Times recent article about perfectionism in students. So Maria, do you have any final comments on how we can best guide our students to lower their rate of perfectionism? And in fact, it just goes against everything of the inner soul and the, and the spirit that we hold. I do think with what Professor Porter said, uh, with um, how overwhelming and how much we have to do to be able to get there. Is this a requirement? Unfortunately, it is. When you're applying for the jobs right now, a lot of the the jobs to teach, they say DMA required. And if you don't have it, they don't even look at your paper. They just go boop and that's okay. And the perfectionism, I think that's part of, of a lot of us and knowing before that we need to do all of this, as Erica was saying, if you're 16, you're, oh my God, this is too much. Um, it is overwhelming. However, uh, what I do say, and I do think, and that's how I have lived my life, is that there's a time for everything. You don't have to do it all at once. You can do things little by little. You, can, you have the time to practice your skills at some point, some, de- develop your technique and your flute playing. And maybe after focusing a little bit on that, then later you can um, be able to work on your entrepreneurial classes. Maybe if you are in the bachelor's degree, your first two years, you're working really hard on your flute playing. Later, you can expand to take all of those other classes in somewhere else. You don't have to go as a freshman and do the, the music and or playing in all of the ensembles and doing the other things that you want to do. For me, I did a master's in Latin American musicology that I never thought I would do just because I had the opportunity. And it was it was later on after my master's in performance, which is what I thought I, ch- I had to do. And I realized when I was doing that, 
there's a time for everything. You don't need to do it all. Uh, you are never too old to do things. You know, maybe we think we need to be prepared when we're in our 20-something, and that's not true. You can no. keep studying and keep growing, and if you want to uh, uh, do yoga and do baking and do all of those things, you also can do it, but there's a time for everything. So just know what the priority in that moment is. Give it your best and do your best uh, on what you can do, and then you'll see when the doors open for something else. It's a very interesting um, thought that some orchestral musicians might have that they could retire into a teaching job. But I wouldn't dissuade them either. I think that that is an opportunity to maybe get an honorary master's if you don't have a master's degree. Say say to the place that you're teaching, hey, can I have a master's degree? I really want to teach in this major university and make a difference later in my life. So I think um, that makes us competitive. So I would say Yes, a lot. 95% of these universities are saying DMA required. And perhaps I couldn't get a job. What do you think these days? I don't know. Well, I don't know. I, you have the equivalent of three DMA degrees. So Yes, at my age of 34. <laughs> wow, wasn't I lucky? Well, thank you so very much for being with me today and bringing it all out, dispelling myths and bringing our belief system into the 21st century. You guys, thank you so much for being in, in, the, in the pod. Go Blue Flutes forever and ever. Maria Castillo, Erica Boysen. Find them at UNCG Erica Boysen and UT Knoxville, Maria Castillo. Thanks, ladies. Bye. Thank you. You can find more about Maria Castillo at Maria F. Castillo, C-A-S-T-I-L-L-O dot com and Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A-B-O-Y-S-E-N dot com. Join us next week for our Etudes episode. You're not going to want to miss it. We're going to have some clarinet players in the podcast. We'll discuss the Rose Etudes that I published with Carl Fisher. You can find more about me at amyporter.com and for students, there's your resource, porterflute.com. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.